Good evening, and welcome to session six of Rare Book School of Ten of Rare Book School 2005. Uh, those of you who have been around here for a while will realize that there's a plot in which graduates of the Columbia Rare Book Program eventually take over the world. <laughs> and we've made great progress this, this year. The president of the Bibliographical Society, John Bidwell, the president of the American Printing History Association, uh, Martin Antonetti, the chairman of RBMS, Catherine Reagan, are all graduates of the Columbia Rare Book Program, as is tonight's speaker, Jane Siegel, an old friend from Columbia Days, the caretaker of the original Rare Book School papyrus plant, and tonight's speaker on the celebrated a collection of calligraphy books at Columbia University. It's a great pleasure to welcome her to this podium. I, of course, am not actually a graduate of the robot program in the well, library school, but close. Well, you took the class. I took the class after I had the job. <laughs> So I'm here to talk about American handwriting. Um, I'm going to apologize for having written this down, but if I hadn't sorted out ahead of time uh, which digressions to include and which to avoid, we'd be here all night. Uh, what we're not mostly going to talk about is this kind of fancy work, but rather the people and manuals that taught basic penmanship. I'm going to do something unusual tonight. I'm going to brag a bit about Columbia's collection of handwriting manuals. This is, this is the good side. Uh, one of the best American collections. Not that other people don't brag about their collections, but being skeptical New Yorkers, Colombians are more inclined to bury Caesar than to praise him. Um, but almost everything that you'll see tonight is from our collection, thanks to George Plimpton, uh, chairman of Ginn and Company, the textbook publishers. Plimp uh, Plimpton collected the history of education, including manuals teaching penmanship, there are early continental works, Italian, Spanish, French, a strong collection of Dutch, as well as a fair bunch of British titles. This picture, I, I was looking for a nice studio picture of Plimpton, and I found this, which the note says um, was taken by George Eastman, the um, photography inventor. Um, but Eastman's father, also named George, uh, was a co-author of several penmanship manuals. The strength of our collection is American. There are 900 or more American titles, the bulk of which was put together by Alfred Manson, one of the principals of the firm, Payson, Dunton, and Scribner, rivals to the Spencerian syndicate in the second half of the 19th century. Uh, when he was putting his collection together, he, he mailed these out in, in vast numbers. Ray Nash, Dartmouth professor and historian of graphic arts, wrote the history of American handwriting including bibliographies of American copybooks up to 1850. My theory is that he either died before he could tackle the period 1850 to 1900, or he was just too smart to get tangled up with that lot. You'll see that the story gets rather complicated after the middle of the century, and many of the characters involved are just not that nice. The earliest European colonists naturally brought handwriting styles with them from home. German immigrants, mostly in the Philadelphia area, brought German styles, and English settlers brought the then-current style secretary and italic. 
Uh, this is a Latin exercise by a Columbia student from 1762. In America, we mostly imported and used British models and manuals, and that's what we're going to be talking about. In the 17th century, the British developed a style called roundhand out of italic as a legible cursive suitable for business as the British Empire and commerce expanded. Roundhand became an international style dominant for more than a century. This document is from 1745 by a famous writing master named Abaya Holbrook. Said we'd get to him tonight. Uh, asking Boston for a pay increase. This, as many here will recognize, is from George Bickham's The Universal Penman, published in 1743. It was an expensive folio book of engraved plates, meant for show, although used for study as well. Most books used for study were rather less glamorous. The first handwriting instructions printed on this side of the Atlantic were a few pages in Benjamin Franklin's edition of a popular British book of instruction for clerks. In it, in addition to a lot of how-tos about bookkeeping and accounts and sundry other topics, there is text on quill preparation, ink making, and a few plates of handwriting exemplars, which reflect Franklin's own handwriting. This is a letter from Franklin to John Jay, uh, written in 1781. In the 18th and most of the 19th century, penmanship was a job skill. Writing and accounting were often taught together as they are the skills needed to become a clerk. You could teach yourself, or try to, from this or one of a number of other manuals, and many did. The earliest separate American writing book is The Writing Scholar's Assistant, published by Isaiah Thomas in 1785. You can see that Thomas has evaded the high cost of engraved plates by using script types. Although it is interesting, it is not entirely satisfactory as a writing manual. In the 18th and 19th century, or into the 19th century, the teacher of handwriting was a writing master. He made and mended the quill pens and provided the instruction and the copies for the students uh, to imitate. This piece is from 1809. Uh, these copies are often manuscript, but as schools got bigger and demand grow, grew, <sighs> 20 times I have read this thing, and every time there's another typo. Uh, as schools got bigger and demand grew, engraved versions proved useful. As an example of the printed copy slips, here are Caleb Bingham's copy slips from 1803. Caleb taught school in Boston and is better known for his textbooks, including the Columbian Orator. For our first digression, Caleb's sister Sophia was a capable penwoman herself. I found this in a barn in Massachusetts. Uh, Sophia also provided the samples for Caleb's ladies' copies. Without knowing anything about Sophia's life, I can say that this is a common pattern in the 19th century the wife, sister, or daughter providing illustration, often uncredited, to the work by her famous husband, sibling, or father. And while we're at it, you see how the Bingham's lady's hand is smaller in size than the regular hand. Typically, girls are started on the general hand and may later graduate to the lady's hand, which is always smaller, sometimes a little different, perhaps more italic, more angular, or just with fancier capitals. 
Thanks to Ray Nash, we define American handwriting as starting with a man named John Jenkins in the very end of the 18th century. In 1791, Jenkins published his new system of penmanship. His contribution was this rendering of all lowercase letters as composed of six component parts, the principal strokes. The breaking down of letters wasn't new. Arrighi had, after all, done it in the first published handwriting manual in 1522 or 1525, according to a noted expert. Here you see the first page of text showing, circled in red, uh, the two possible lead-off strokes. Uh, as the pages progress, you get, you get more and more of these little pieces that go together to join, to, to create letters. But the rigor of Jenkins' system was different. Here you see which elements combine to make each letter. This is Jenkins' author portrait, the frontispiece of his book, in which he looks very respectable, if a little thin. In his introduction, though, Jenkins admitted that he had started teaching penmanship without having a good hand himself. Until the advent of very generally available public schooling in the second half of the 19th century, you learned to write in penmanship classes. In town schools, either the school teacher was a writing master or arrangements were made for the students to study with one. Outside of schools, especially outside the cities, aspiring penmen took classes with itinerant writing masters who taught a course of classes, usually in penmanship and bookkeeping, the basic skills needed to get a town job. This, I'll say that the slides aren't the, aren't the most professional, but this is actually how this thing looks in real life. It, it doesn't come out very well. But down at the bottom, he says, $1 for 12 lessons. Nash suggests that the city would naturally get the best penmen, while the country may do either with young ones learning their trade or the older not-so-good ones. In town, a school or teacher could build up a reputation. To decide whether a traveling teacher was worth a dollar for 12 lessons, you looked at his credentials. These credentials included testimonials from respectable persons and examples of the teacher's work. The concept of command of hand is an old one in penmanship, but demonstrating ability was still a recommendation to teach in the 19th, even late into the century. This was cut into two pieces in 1870 and mounted into a scrapbook. Printed advertisements could be handed out liberally, but the manuscript ones demonstrated competence. There was much accusation throwing that teachers were using samples provided by others. Jenkins admit that he admits that he did it. Finally, he says, embarrassed by his inability, he worked hard to improve his own hand, and in the process, stumbled onto and refined his system. So here we are back at Jenkins, who proposed that you could learn to write from his book without a writing master. And Jenkins was so successful in encouraging youth that he created many of his competitors. As the title page indicates, Jenkins' system was meant to be published in seven parts. We only know of three of them ever making it to light, two of them extant and only one copy of each. Book one was a teaching manual, which includes complete instructions. The other books apparently were meant to take the student slowly through the whole process of learning to write. The student learned the elements separately and then combined them into letters. 
studying the form of the letter in great detail with the aid of memorized dialogues. The student started writing a large size and then later segued into a smaller running, uh, joined running script suitable for business. In 1809, this pathetic pamphlet appeared, detailing Jenkins' troubles signed by a number of eminent persons. It seems that after Jenkins published his first book in 1791, many others had capitalized on his system, republishing it mostly without crediting him. Crushed by the cost of the engraved plates, much more than he had anticipated, and by ill health, this pamphlet was published to find patrons for Jenkins. He did manage to put out an, an, an enlarged version of his book, of book one, first in 1813 and then in 1816, but he never became successful financially. This is the title page of Henry Dean's Analytical Guide, first published in 1805. Dean was the first of the Jenkins copiers, and Dean's book is the first ambitious American handwriting manual. Dean wasn't one of those peripatetic backwoods teachers. He was on the whole living and working on a grander scale than Jenkins ever did. His book is rather grander too. The Dean 1805 first edition is quarto, 56 pages, and 18 engraved plates, while Jenkins' 1791 octavo, octavo had only 32 pages and four engraved plates. The title page of the first edition of Dean's Analytical Guide says that it is collected and arranged by Henry Dean. Collected, that is, from Jenkins and from various British books, all unnamed. By the 1808 second edition that we see here, the work is by Dean, who now styles himself a professor of penmanship. As a sample of the kind of borrowing Dean did, we have this plate from Dean, and this one from Richard Langford, published in London in 1787, 20 years earlier. Dean, unlike Jenkins, also published at least four sets of copies, a printer's academical companion, and Dean's universal penman with 30 engraved plates. If you take a look down in the corner here, let me help, uh, Eloisa R. Payne. Both title pages and the analytical plate that I've shown you were written out by the daughter of a friend of Dean, a woman named Eloise Richards Payne. The other plates in Dean's books were by Dean or his students. This will be our second digression. Eliza's father, William Payne, was a teacher who went out of business in a series of schools in Boston, East Hampton, and New York. He was respected as a teacher, but not financially savvy. Her brother was John Howard Payne, who started as an actor, the first American Hamlet, and had a series of interesting lives. You should read a biography of him, or, or at least his DAB entry. This is from an album put together by Eloise's niece, also named Eloise. Here in the upper left-hand corner is Father William and his wife, Sarah. <laughs> On the right, end, the right end of the second row are Eloise and her sister, Anna. The family thought that Eloise was the smart one. She made the designs for the Dean plates uh, around the age of 18. In 1809, at 21, she opened a school in Newport with her sister, Anna. Unfortunately, all the students were withdrawn when the War of 1812 started. 
At the close of the first term of her school, she wrote to her father regarding her younger brother's profession. Do not, I entreat, let him be brought up with any reference to school keeping. There is no honest profession, were it a shoe black, which I should so sincerely deprecate. As we're talking about handwriting, this is another letter by Eloise to a young lady in her best, that is neatest and tiniest, tiniest lady's hand. And this, I'd be indebted to anybody who can explain to me later the symbolism of this watercolor by Eloise, saved by her niece in the same portfolio as the locks of hair. It's fascinating, isn't it? Back to the guys. Dean, like Jenkins, taught round hand, often called coarse hand, first, emphasizing understanding letter forms, then gradually decreasing size and adding joins to make a running hand. Nash tells us that more than 100 different American authors published writing books before 1850. The other heirs of Jenkins stress speed and movement, often teaching a running hand from the start, moving away from drill on the shapes of letters to stressing movement. Until the typewriter becomes useful and common at the end of the century, the clerk's pens had to keep up with the ever-increasing needs of business. Every new manual talks of its ease and its practicality for learning a hand for commercial use and how the new movement or simplified letter form being featured makes writing more rapid. Tied up also with these small cursive running hands is the introduction of the steel pen nib, invented in 1822, but only common at mid-century. But quills can get cut sharper and springier, so they also could make the same letter forms as the steel pens. After Dean, the next star of American penmanship was Benjamin Franklin Foster, born around 1803. Foster's contribution was to emphasize forearm movement as the key to rapid handwriting. This is an, an exercise in movement. You, you write across and you swing around because your hand is free. <laughs> the aim of the system was to encourage forearm movement, which allowed the arm to glide across the page. Foster also used whole arm movement that is, movement from the shoulder. Whole arm movement wasn't new, but earlier writing masters doing fancy ornamental initials and verbs had used it. But this arm movement was now being used to hurry along the cursive hand, and, they said, to make it easier to write for long periods of time, the large muscles of the arm tiring less easily than the small muscles of the fingers. Claims and arguments about arm, forearm, and finger movement would continue, rather boringly, for decades. The device shown here was used on beginning students to prevent finger movement until they got used to depending on the forearm movement. Foster's Système Américain was well known in Europe, which is really cool, except that Foster's system was copied from an Englishman named Carstairs. Foster openly credited Carstairs on the title pages of his first couple of books and then tended to forget to mention him. And then, strangely, Foster, who also had one of those embittering careers, or at least he felt that he had been stolen from, had a change of heart and renounced the Carstairs-like movement-centered system, but the damage was done. Forearm movement had been taken up by others. In Writing and Writing Masters, published in 1869, and in his anonymous satirical verse, Humbug, 
He tore apart everyone from Carr Stairs to Alvin Dutton, with good words only for himself and for Dean, as having the correct emphasis on properly shaped letter forms rather than on movement. This is the part where he rips into Alvin Dutton. We are now at the middle of the century, and things start to get interesting. The second half of the century saw a transition from teachers producing manuals mostly for their own use in teaching to large commercial concerns, often tied with publishers producing and pushing penmanship teaching systems. Now we'll look at a typical system, an early one from 1864 by Platt Rogers Spencer, consisting of, as it says in the title page, 12 numbers, four distinct series. The first five books constitute the common school series intended for normal grade schools. These start with Jenkins' principal strokes and work up to sentences. Books six and seven are the business series, which use business forms as copies. And books eight and nine are the ladies series. The instructions explain that the girls should work their way through books one to four and six before tackling the ladies' books. And yes, the lady's hand is little and tiny. Books 10 to 12 are exercise books to teach proper movement, forearm and whole arm. They also include some fancy alphabets. And the system also includes Spencerian wall charts and the Spencerian key, a manual intended, they say, for teachers, pupils, and professional penmen. And, of course, they offer pens, here advertised in the second column, and here. And then there's this label, referring to the Spencerian satchel, a piece of ephemera which I found bound into the volume with the copy books. Uh, different publisher systems vary, and the systems get even more structured as time go goes on, but this example is relatively typical. Part of the commercialization was encouraged by cultural change. As public school systems became larger, more centralized, and more bureaucratic, and taught more subjects, the individual teacher couldn't be expected to be a penmanship expert and had less and less autonomy. School systems bought penmanship systems. Spencerian penmanship demonstrates the course of penmanship teaching and the development of systems through the second half of the century. Platt Rogers Spencer was apparently a very nice person and an excellent teacher. He was born in 1800 into a farming family. He always loved letter forms and made connections between them and the forms of nature. He said that pebbles and waves should be the penman's model for the curves of his letters. In wing and leaf, we see the principles. He showed early promise and overcame an addiction to alcohol with the help of his wife, Persis, and by dint of hard work became the best known penman of his day, Father Spencer. He began as an itinerant teacher of penmanship and published copy slips in 1848 to aid in his teaching, although he also continued to handwrite copies for his students throughout his life. But then Michael Soule tells us that Spencer also continued to use a quill pen through to his death in 1864. His first copybooks appeared in 1854. The copybook has the model to be imitated, uh, printed at the top of the page. 
His co-author was James W. Lusk. Both men were at this time connected with the Bryant, Lusk, and Stratton chain of business schools. Business schools taught the traditional combination of accountancy and penmanship, and also the teaching of penmanship teachers. Spencer started his own school, the Log Cabin Seminary, so his older children could help teach the younger ones. Spencer and Persis had 11 children. The five sons and one nephew went into the family business. Also, at least one daughter and a daughter-in-law, but they never made it onto the title pages. After Platt's death in 1864, his sons did their best to turn him into the patron saint of penmanship. They had good material. You'll see why I like him so much in a little while. But the sons, while glorifying Spencer, changed uh, and kept reworking his penmanship system and books to respond to the market. Uh, this is this is a change through time all after uh, Spencer's death. Until it was nothing, Platt would have recognized. In the 1890s, this one on the bottom, Spencerian even joined the fad for vertical writing, a continental import. In the hands of his heirs, the Spencerian penmanship system covered the country, taught in public, private, and business schools, including a chain of Spencerian business colleges. And although most of you have heard only of Spencerian, the market was too big for Spencer not to have rivals. It is often said that Spencer's secret weapon was all those children to continue the name. But equally important was the association of Spencerian with the huge chains of Bryant and Stratton and later Spencerian business colleges, which gave the, gave the Spencerian a market advantage. Spencer's biggest commercial rivals were the Duntons. There are two Dunton brothers, whom I am inclined to think of as the good Dunton, Alvin, creator of the Duntonian system, and the evil Dunton, Seldom, one of the principals of Payson, Dunton, and Scribner. This dichotomy may not withstand closer scholarly investigation, but it is amusing to think this way. Both Duntons grew up in Maine and escaped the shoemaking business by setting up, much as Jenkins had a half century before, as penmanship teachers. Who studied with whom is a matter of dispute. And we have a lot of conflicting information about the Duntons because they, I'm sorry to say, were not just competitors, but legal disputants. Apparently, there were innuendos, allegations, and even lawsuits, mostly over copyrights, flying around in the second half of the century between the Spencerians, Alvin's Duntonian system, Seldom's group, PDNS, and anyone else who was anyone. At Columbia, remember, our own collection was formed by A.S. Manson of PDNS because of the lawsuits. As an example of the general brouhaha, part of Manson's collection is this set of 24 volumes containing copybooks, ephemera, and written statements, all gathered in 1871 in aid of uh, one of the lawsuits, apparently between Alvin and PDNS. The depositions on the fly leaves of these volumes tell us the PDNS version of their joint history and a rather more credible discussion of some of their strategies. For example, they tell us about the creation of books for specific market niches. In volume four of the set are books revised in 1854, particularly for the Boston market. You'll have to believe everything I say about this slide. Manson quotes Payson and Dutton as certifying that 
quote, in the preparation of these copies, Mr. Payson was assisted in the plans by Mr. Henry Williams, principal of Winthrop School of Boston, who aimed to conform the style more after that taught in the Boston schools, known as the round hand or Boston system. The copies in these books were made specially to please the Boston masters, but it was soon found that the style would not become popular. Meanwhile, the books in the system published first as Payson and Dutton's were still manufactured and supplied to such as wanted a free running hand. Later examples of market niches include this book created for the Freedmen's Schools of Boston in 1865 and this one created for Vermont Schools in 1867 and a whole series of 15 copy books created for New Brunswick around 1880. They have largely new copies with Canadian place names, for example, and the last two books include A Curious Alternative Lady's Hand, which was popular in the 1870s, called Angular. Even more interesting is PDNS's claim that they were the first to print copy books by lithography in 1851. On the flyleaf of volume one of the collected set, Payson and Dutton say that the books in this volume represent their first publication of copy books. The first book was printed from the copper plates, the impressions of which may still be seen around the copies at the head of the pages in the darkened color of the paper. By printing from the plates, it was a slow process. Only four copies were printed at an impression. This caused them to consider some more rapid method of printing. Mr. Payson, while experimenting with different methods of printing, saw some fine maps printed from the lithographic process. He at once conceived the idea that copy books could be printed in the same way by transfers from the copper plate. An experiment proved his idea to be a practical one and the result a complete success. The second book in this volume represents a copy of the same as the first only from stone as above described by the lithographic process. The first process, this is all Manson writing Payson and Dunton, I do not write this way. The first process, printing directly from the copper plates, required that the paper be damped twice and partially dried before printing, which caused the paper to shrink, besides destroying the original finish of the same. By the lithographic process, the original finish of the paper was preserved, it being only necessary to expose that part of the paper to the damp stone occupied by the copy. And this is the two of them together. This successful experiment established a new feature in copybook manufacture. This is still PDNS. All hitherto had printed copies from woodcuts and electrotypes by the ordinary letterpress work or from copper or steel plates the latter always destroying the surface of the paper for writing as before described. All who hitherto had employed any other process of printing immediately abandoned it and adopted the lithographic process because of its preeminent superiority. That's the end of them. Mm -hmm. I can add that as late as 1887, they were still having copper or steel engravings made first and the lithography for the books done from the engravings. Elsewhere, PDNS pointed out how lithography made the books affordable. Copy books, you understand, have to be bought afresh for each student as they are written in and used up. So making the books affordable actually led to acceptance of this new style of book and to many more sales in the long run. As to PDNS's claim of priority, I know that there was no Spencerian copy book until 1855, four years later. 
they were still printing their engraved copy slips. There were, however, at least two books of fancy penmanship printed by lithography in 1845 and 1848, several years before PDNS's copybooks, but more investigation remains to be done. The combination of business and art seems to be the hallmark of the last quarter of the century. I like to make PDNS out as the bad guys because they seem more to be in a business, in a rather cutthroat business, than dedicated artists of penmanship. Columbia's collection, of course, in, holds a, a bit of PDNS ephemera. It does seem so far that they produced more in the penmanship pamphlet wars than anyone else. This is the answer of PDNS to a statement of facts by Isaiah Ryder, the, a competitor. This actually is from the Spencerian camp. It wasn't only PDNS. Uh, this is the Spencer cousin named Warren uh, saying nasty things about the Spencerians. They got together in, in a few years. And this is a reply by the Spencerian, by the Spencer brothers to PDNS, they had, they had this little battle going back and forth, and this is the middle part. Uh, P.R. Spencer defended by his son, Spencerian penmanship original with him, a peaceful challenge to Pace and Dunn and Scribner. The reply <laughs> of PDNS. <laughs> and a piece like this, although not signed, is just the sort of thing Alvin accused PDNS of distributing. Uh, in, in this, is, this is all about how A.R. Dunton uh, stole dry goods out of a dry goods store. Uh, <coughs> this piece, it's the only one like it I've found, and it was bound into a volume uh, which is mostly Manson's correspondence about his collecting activities. Along with Manson's books, Plimpton acquired a miscellaneous selection of Manson's correspondence from the 1870s and 1880s. So I'll give you an unfair sample to base your own opinion of PDNS's artistry on. Jesse Payson, the author of this letter, was supposed to be a pretty good penman. He did the copies for the engraver for the PDNS system until Scribner joined Payson and Dutton in 1855. Seldom Dutton has very much evaded me. This blank circle, by the way, is by somebody else. It's just holding the screen because I haven't found any samples of Dunton's hand, a picture of him, or any mention of him except what he tells of his career in the flyleaves of that court set of books. And a terribly sad obituary from the New York Times which said that he had committed, committed suicide in 1890 at the age of 81. Quote, due to the recent combination of school book publishers and fear that his financial interests would suffer for it. The uh, obituary makes much of the fact that his mother had named him Seldom because, quote, it seldom occurred for a woman to have seven boys, one right after another. <laughs> William Scribner worked with or for Alvin Dunton, for six years or so before he switched over to the dark side in 1855. He did most of the work preparing the copies for PDNS, at least into the 1880s. George Shattuck, 
bought into PDNS around 1862 and left to join the Spencerians, I think in 1874. But after writing this letter to Manson about PDNS winning a verdict, he also helped Manson with his collecting by looking for things as he traveled. Alfred Manson bought into PDNS in 1868. He seems to have been a strategist and a salesman for the system. He is also credited by third parties as being an accomplished penman, executing birds and feathers, doing lovely demonstrations. These envelopes, used to mail out a circular denouncing the publishers of Woolworth and Company for copyright infringement, are the fanciest things by him I've found in our collection so far. And just because we have it, this is by Mr. Sweat, who was the engraver for PDNS for decades. Apparently no slouch with a pen, as well as a graver. So I've told you all the gossip, so we don't actually have time to look at the classrooms of the second half of the century with their blackboard practice and their concert drills. There was a slide there. Ah, on simpler and simpler letter forms. And really, we're going to stop there in the 1890s. Off in the wings is Austin Palmer, and who wants to go there? <laughs> but you don't really want to go away with this thought. So, the point of a comedy is to end in a wedding. We're going to go back to Platt Rogers Spencer, the romantic. You have to feel for him. He worked very hard and was very concerned about his very large family. But I was looking through some of the Spencer papers at the Newberry Library, trying unsuccessfully to find discussion of lawsuits and comp competition with PDNS. What I did find was this lovely story. Uh, this would be Platt and Persis, his wife. And this is Sarah. Spencer's eldest daughter, Sarah, also taught handwriting like the boys did. In 1854, Sarah was 22 and teaching at Bryant Luscombe Stratton's Mercantile College in Cleveland, Ohio. She received a three-page letter from her parents, held by the Newberry Library, from which I will now read excerpts. Written from home, Sunday night, April 9, 1854. <coughs> Dear daughter, you will expect a letter from father and mother unitedly, touching the policy of your continuing at Cleveland or otherwise. We have examined the premises as candidly as we could and agree in the conclusion that common prudence under the circumstances indicate that you ought not to remain there. There is no doubt but you are very agreeable to Mr. Lusk, and it is equally certain that he, by kindness and attention, seeks to render himself so agreeable to you, so far gain your partialities, that you will accept him as a partner for life. I don't have a picture of Mr. Lusk to show you, but a fellow penman later remembered him thus. Mr. Lusk was a man of extraordinary nerve, fine physique, and splendid presence. He had a keen, piercing blue eye, which looked out from beneath heavy black eyebrows, and which could shoot out glances of reproach or commendation in a way not to be mistaken. Spencer goes on to suggest that whether Sarah is prepared to listen to Mr. Lusk or not, she should, stay in, she should not stay in Cleveland. But the letter goes on. We believe that the best sympathies of your heart are with one whose voice you too seldom hear, save in sweet, absorbing memory, the doubts and rich expectations which betoken the presence of that affection which the heart knows but once. 
We feel that we are not mistaken in this, and we feel also that only in following the windings and tendencies of this holy current is secured the highest social enjoyments of life. As parents, we desire to secure for you, dear daughter, such enjoyments as these, which shall be disentangled from all harrowing regrets, regrets of past error in mistaking the secondary impulse of respect and pity for the first pure heaven-directed throbbings of the one pure flame. This is Junius R. Sloan, born in 1827, so about five years older than Sarah, a friend of her brother's and an aspiring artist. Uh, the Geneva farm in question would be the Spencer farm. I'll remind you that in 1854, Spencer is 54, still has a passel of children on hand, and is still making the rounds through various Ohio cities as a teacher of penmanship. Spencerian is not yet a household word. It delights me that Platt is encouraging his daughter to think about this artist. Certainly my own father would not have encouraged me that way. Spencer continues in the third paragraph, if you want to follow along. True, the noble Junius has not declared himself, but can you transfer to another the affection you feel for him? If you cannot, that other is not rendered happy by your companionship, and you may be rendered wretched for life. Spencer goes on to declare in several paragraphs that he doubts not at all that Junius loves Sarah. He continues, The idea may spring up that Junius will never declare himself, but is there any evidence of this? Who can fathom the causes of his silence? May it not be the prevailing one with him to defer until he so far perfects himself in his favorite art as to be able to offer a suitable home and support to the acceptance of the one that accepts him? and at the same time unwilling to link in any shape the destiny of another with his, to him, uncertain destiny, well knowing that hope deferred maketh the heart sick. Or, <laughs> pure-hearted and self-sacrificing nature, it may it not be that he would almost consider it infidelity to seek suddenly to link his fate with the one whom he invests with the virtues to deserve, and the power to command an alliance far more promising and honorable. But perhaps we have written enough. <laughs> you perceive what we are aiming at. Your happiness and enjoyment and welfare is our aim, our theme. There is much underlining. So Junius and Sarah were married a few years later in 1858. They moved around at first and settled in Chicago, although Sarah spent a lot of time with Platt up to his death in 1864. Feeling that she wasn't properly recognized, Susan, uh, Susan, Sarah wanted to put out a distaff side copybook, but her brothers wouldn't back her, and her sister Ellen wasn't interested. She went on to become a lawyer and a woman's rights leader, so the project was never accomplished. Uh, this is a manuscript title page also at the Newbury. Junius is now known as a minor American painter. Sarah continued to teach Spencerian penmanship to supplement Junius's erratic income. They had two sons, Spencer and Percy. Despite their difficulties, by all accounts, they lived happily ever after. 
If you remember, Platt's first series of copybooks, rather than copy slips, was published in the year after this letter was written. In fact, two sets of Spencerian books appeared in 1855. In one set, Platt is joined, on the, uh, joined by the rejected suitor James W. Lusk on the title page, and we find this page of copies inside. This fuzzy page of copies, which says James, 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 James. The other set has only Platt on the title page, and we find this page of copies inside. Voilà. <laughs>